Okay. I am Pamela Pierce. I coordinate programs for Penn American Center. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all to our office, to our event space, and to have another one of the events that we do um, with the Penn Writers in Exile USA. We have been doing events together for a number of years now. Each event gets better. Each time I work with Irina, I love it more, and I wish that everybody were like her. And each time we're all together, I feel that it, the warmth increases and some kind of understanding and exchange that is greater and greater takes place. I hope you enjoy the evening, and I hope afterward you will spend some time with us. We'll have a little reception at that end of the office, and we can all schmooze and have a drink together, okay? And Clara Georgie is the next person. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, friends. Uh, before I welcome you all from the bottom of my heart, I would like to express my deep gratitude to the American Pen, which had made this programming possible uh, at a time when it was virtually impossible for us to gather and to have a program. Since then, this lovely tradition um, has continued, and now it is an annual affair. Thank you very much for allowing us this opportunity of expression and sharing our art with each other and with you. Uh, as president of Writers in Exile Penn Center, I would like to take this opportunity to tell you, aside from being very happy that we can have our program across nationalities, which we have always done, as you probably know, we have 19 nationalities in our center. Unfortunately, out of the 19, only three languages are uh, represented tonight. But since we have been growing, I hope that it is going to grow too. And we will expand to languages uh, seldom heard in these um, August rooms. Um, we have Ukrainians, Russians, and a Polish uh, representation tonight. And it's I, I, and the Hungarian. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, there is a limit to undue modesty, isn't there? Being a Hungarian. Um, Actually, then I have to correct myself and say four, not three. Um, as I said before, we welcome this opportunity. We would like to have more. But what I would like to say most of all, you should give us more feedback, cooperate with the leadership, keep in touch with us so that we would know you better and could invite you to participate. It's up to you. Uh, because we have very limited time, 
I don't want to continue any further except that welcome you all and I'm very happy you all came. Thank you very much. Good evening and welcome here from me, little one. Our first writer is going to be Mr. Baranski. As you see on our programs, we were trying to do alphabetically. So B is first before D and so on. So we welcome Mr. Baranski Yop Lashlo. Um, I will try to read short poems here and a longer poem which is a little bit more difficult uh, will be read by my good friend, a young American poet Mark Nasdor. Uh, uh, the first uh, uh, poem uh, will be The Stupid Relative, which I'm going to read in English first and then in Hungarian. This is the little poem which is permitted to be in my native language. Uh, now, one uh, operational word. I write in both languages. And uh, sometimes the English version is the first, and so the Hungarian is the second one. And sometimes the Hungarian is the first, and then I have a translation. Uh, uh, needless to tell you that uh, 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 I don't remember any poem which came out the same in, in both languages. There are differences, which will be demonstrated here to the uh, 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 Hungarians present. The stupid relative. There he stands, the stupid relative in the store. He had been gainfully employed by the owner. He puts things in order, mostly on the shelves. Where is dust? These stores are inordinately dusty, and the display in the window is really haphazard. I used to go right up to him. My English turns bad in the store. I speak slowly with heavy Hungarian accent. Bad grammar and all. He understands me, has patience. I want to buy pencils, usually Eberhard Faber Mongols, 482s, there is something in this label. He doesn't find them at first, although the Mongols are always around here for sure. Finally, somebody tells him where the pencils are. I take number two. I like them soft. The stupid relative smiles and likes me buying these nice yellow pencils with pink rubber tips at their other end. He multiplies, and while he calculates the tax, we talk about those fabulous Kohinoor mechanical pencilettes. People come and go and can't figure it out. How come that we have such a wonderful time? Now, this in Hungarian. És a pult mögött persze a lelkem a fogyatékos rokon, Délutános Isten bizony évek óta rendbe rakja ezt, meg azt odébb teszi portorról a polcokon, ebben az üzletben mindig térdig gázolhatsz a portban, szinte lapátorni lehet a kirakat, meg tiszta csálére áll. Egyenest hozzá szoktam fordulni rendszerint, mert hogy a boltban az angolon mindig elpicsul. 
hebegek, iszonyú magyar al és felhangokkal, sehogy sem egy hibás a mondatszerkezetem, szabadkozom, ő meg csak türelmesen hallgat, sejti ám, hogy mit akarok, ceruzákat szeretnék venni, többnyire 482-es Eberhard Faber mongolokat, nem ebben a cégjelzésben valami. Sokáig nem találja őket. Pedig a mongolok mindig itt szoktak lúgni valahol, ebben az ember egészen biztos lehet. Végül is valaki megmondja neki, hogy hol vannak a ceruzák. A fogyatékosokon meg musolyog, imád engem, hogy ilyen szép sárga ceruzákat veszek, aminek rózsaszín gumicici van a másik végén, szoroz és kiszámítja az adót. A világhírű Kohinor műszaki ceruzák grafitjáról beszélgettünk a ceruza hegyekről. Jönnek, mennek az emberek, és sehogy se értik, hogy mi az Istennek örülünk annyira. Na, the next poem is a very simple one. If I spend the last two months of my mother's life with her, and that's a little souvenir of it. Mother on balcony. Criminals confessing everything and incriminating everybody else on the screen. Blue light. Otherwise, this is an unbelievably tranquil evening, almost bucolic. So I have a free ride on the ferry as international fishing is going strong on the lake. When I arrive, mother with head turned into the incoming wind, drifting from Führer, is out on the balcony. Clear cut in the glassy light. New York poem. A short requiem for Mrs. Harvey. She'd moved out of here yesterday, she did, Mrs. Harvey, for about 50 years that she has been living here, Mrs. Harvey. She had seen the great San Francisco earthquake. She had seen it, Mrs. Harvey. She said, we had a stream here running down the street. That's what she said, Mrs. Harvey. And I, let's go for a walk, Mrs. Harvey, down to the corner and back, Mrs. Harvey. Yesterday, her broken box spring busted, hit the street. She was 91, Mrs. Harvey. <laughs> now, here's a seasonal poem. Hi, Emil. A, 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 a seasonal, seasonal poem, a spring haiku for Gregory. Spring is here, the little meter maid has finally returned. She's ticketing the cars beneath my open window. <laughs> comes to, comes uh, 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 to, to, thanks. Comes to a little bit more, more difficult one. These are homages to Kafka. Kafka, as you do realize, is the, one of the basic authors, if not the most basic ones. Uh, uh, for East Europeans, and uh, uh, whatever is in it stays with you. And uh, uh, these uh, uh, two are uh, poems related to this experience. Number one, speed. Speed blue exit burns, holes and melts into celluloid chunks of memory. It bubbles and fades into swimming buckshots. 
x density of imprint on a 24 to infinite seconds per frame. Second, like an ant on my desk, crawling rapidly, no frequency, none whatsoever, deaf to Vivaldi, which station, which, climbing on stacked envelopes, get down to earth if you must. Shall we say tomorrow, Vita Nuova? Rev it up. Mark, I'm afraid it's your turn. Okay, I'll just read uh, one of uh, Laszlo's poems. Um, interesting is that when I first uh, saw this poem, I uh, had to be, I had to spend uh, 15 minutes berating him because uh, sometimes, uh, since Laszlo writes in in both Hungarian and English, I sometimes am not sure whether he's writing um, in. Uh, in English with Hungarian syntax, or the original Hungarian has an American syntax. So since it's all confused, uh, every time he hands over one of his poems, I have to go over with a fine tooth comb. And uh, let's see what we have here now. De Lingua, one. Most of the time I write in Hungarian. This is a nostratic language if there ever was one, old and unpredictable. The predicates are my predicament. I've learned that early. When I had to switch to a much younger and therefore more flaccid language in which everything is so well defined and nothing is left for the imagination. She has left you, you say in Hungarian, and that could indicate that she had departed for a better world, which is in this case not America but Hades. In English, you better say, when did she leave you? or for what slash whom did she leave you? Or better, much better, you state that she left us here bereft. Now, in Hungarian, all this is implied by the tone, the delicate stresses veining your voice. I believe at the beginning there was the tone, not the word. The Lord said, ach, na, ja, and then a big bang. Archaic language, the Hungarian, language before time. If I want to be precise, and unfortunately I picked up this habit of precision, and now it has become my second habit, so to speak. However, I am constant in my yearning for vagueness. I want to produce a loose language which has ample room in it, like an old army boot that is two sizes too big and saves you from freezing or frostbite. And there are some expressions which might mean totally different things in Hungarian and English, respectively. Break out is such an expression, for example. You break out the wine, or you break out of Normandy. In Hungarian, break out has a bleak connotation. Zrinyi, Count Zrinyi, no date, had such a breakout at Sigetvar when his castle at the first line of defense of the realm, Vegvar, equals end fortification, ran out of ammunition ran out of ammunition. Man, woman, defenders, etc. And he had to make his glorious and final breakout, dressed up in his Sunday best, loaded with Fiorent <coughs> Fiorentarini sabers and death 
amid throngs of Turkish troops who were not slow to slay him with the rest of his fellow breakout braves. Kirohanash, a breakout, characterizes the Zrinyi dinner as well, which means that you eat your dinner and break out of the suddenly inhospitable confines of your restaurant, leaving the maitre d' nonplussed. This procedure approximates the English sense of the word the closest. Needless to say, that this last form of the breakout has to be practiced until you get it perfect, dashingly perfect. How dashing you are, complimented by your friends, which in, the Hunga which in Hungarian makes no sense at all. However, they could say that your action was mortally good or it was an altar-worthy performance. Anyway, they tend to be either eschatological or theological, or both, about your breakout, which might refer to it or might not, Back to, the count's back to the Count's perfect exit under the sacred walls of the aforementioned castle. Then, of course, you may break out in cold sweat, not to speak of an epidemia of measles. <laughs> now, the last two, two, two one are uh, uh, one difficult one and one easy. Uh, 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 one extremely uh, self-reference, the other is just a straight, horrible to sonnet. So, uh, first the difficult ones. One paraphrase on Baudelaire's causerie, alas, en refluant sur ma lèvre morose, le souvenir cuisson de son limon amer. The course of my unstable, jumpy writing, winding across the page, leaves a great deal for your imagination. Instead of dealing with communicating vessels, I'm safely buried in operating manuals and sales catalogs. As I gain some momentum in my sticky comings and goings back and forth on the paper, I move like the light tongue of a grandfather clock on the fingerprinted glass of a French cabinet loaded with crystals. In other words, in the wake of my epiphragmatic excursion into that proverbial mud bath, it's the aftertaste of the deep frozen television shows and self-service cabarets, multi-million years old and just recently excavated. And of course, and this is what I should have started out with the, at the outset, the taste of your nonchalantly denuded left breast that left me with an unshiftable imprint, which by now could be made truly whole only by posting, nailing it to the shingles of that cabin on the right pier, the summer schedules of the low and high tides. And here comes the sonnet. It's Jebby's Christmas sonnet. Is my wife. That season, you say, here it comes again. No wonder the calendar with my fingerprints, ink spots, nitroglycerinous seasons prints across my desk. Amen, sons the requiem. The dirige animam meam. And now it's time for the joy bringing carols and the evergreen that never dies. What days and how many I have seen gather to order rain or shine, I'm counting now, although it's late to do that. My schedule spins on lathe or like this record wheel. 
The proof that you love me is in my hands, hesitant, feeble movement over the descending needle, barely touching here and there, expectant grooves. I am going to read a short poem from my third book, which I hope will be published in Ukraine. This is, there is no translation for this poem because Miss Kukritska is going to read from my other selections. But this is reality and reminiscence in which I try to bridge and somehow to put together the images, the voices of youth and old age. Щодня барвистішим стає осінній зміст гірських порослих лісом схилів, на них з небес художник абстракціоніст жарких кольорів гаму вилляв, осик і ясенів, мінлива золотінь, і мідь дубів, багряниць кленів, і де-не-де, немов густа хмаринок тінь, ялини вкраплені зелені. Це знов шалених барв осінній фестиваль справляють пагорби, яруги. Мене ж уводить пам'ять в зовсім іншу даль. На рідні повертає круги, туди, де в'ється петляє моя груська, замулена і нікудишня. Далеко відчино, яка ж бо ти близька, й пів віку ніби щось сторішнє. Там виструнчився очерет, як на парад, самі султани і плюмажі, і як у давнину зарядом довгий ряд у брід муруги тягнуть мажі. Соплять муруги, не збавляючи ходи, ступаючи на дно з проквола. Із-під старезних ярм до самої води волов'ї звисають вола, смугасті кавуни з баштанів степових і динь корзина на корзині, і погоничив засмаглих дотипи і сміх дитинства спогади осінні. А тут ні в року теж дитинства любий світ на старість ожива потроху, бо в пам'яті моїй навік залишив слід мисливець шкіряна панчоха. Це ж він мене в роки хлоп'ячі помагав Америки дива пізнати». І що ж на схилі віку древній томагавк і віквам музейні експонати, натомість дивом манить предків давній світ, що в генах у моїх недарма, як ява, а не спогад, і груська, і брід величумацький скифський ярма. I shall read uh, two short poems of Mr. Bialiv first. The Chestnut Trees. Night shuts gold gates beyond blue mountains, and under the window in the garden stand chestnuts assembled one by one, meeting in mourning for the sun as elders mourn for years of youth gone by. 
On someone's footsteps, while they gently sigh, a white flower falls, as though remembering one held dear. The chestnuts stand, praying to God thus. Grant to us, Lord, we beg, resplendent days and clear, the bounty of your son's gold give to us, and carefree dreams when bitter winter's here. This one is called, In Streams the Snowflakes Swim. In streams the snowflakes swim, compacted and gray-blue, and butterflies of blossom ring the cherry trees. Tell me, in what prophetic book, by whose hand, pages will again be opened so that the all-healing word's corruptless steadiness shall in deep, filling drafts by feeling's hand be ladled? In our ordained, will you that grace make manifest? I pray and I believe. I hope and silent wait. And now this is an uh, excerpt from uh, Mr. Belive's novel. To the villagers of Bereka, both old and young, their sexton, Kuzma Reva, had always been Kuzma the Elder. He also had a nickname, Starling. By rights, they should have named him Nightingale, for he was the best male singer in their church choir. Starling started to sing as a young boy when the street name was already stuck on him by some witty playmate, for Kuzma's swarthiness and peculiar gait somehow resembled that of this bird. And after his return home from the war with Japan, Kuzma became a village celebrity of sorts, a soloist and a reader. Chanting psalms and troparians up in the high choir, he delighted congregants, especially women, who loved his, as they put it, churchly voice. But that was still some time before he would become sexton. Back in 1904, in a skirmish on a bank of the Yalu River, Kuzma lost his left leg. During his convalescence in an army hospital, his amputated limb was replaced with a crude peg tooled from a birch stem and outfitted with a cushion pad, leather straps, and metal buckles so that the invalid could attach it to his thigh. One day, the hospital received a shipment of a dozen or so of these artificial limbs with a hospital field number and the initials of recipients branded on still fresh-smelling wood. For some reason, Kuzma resented that brand, although all amputees knew that it was done to prevent loss, misplacement, or mismatch of their new legs. What are we now, Sir Cattle? He asked a medical officer on duty, a middle-aged captain, during the latter's morning inspection of the ward, pointing at his branded limb. <clears throat> Don't gripe, Private Reva. The captain flashed a row of golden teeth at him. It's regulation, like the regiment's monogram on your shoulder patches. Besides, my lad, you should thank the Almighty. You only lost one leg. Your mother must have prayed for you real hard. What's your profession in life? Asked the captain. Lantilla, sir, Reva snapped, and descendant of the free Cossacks, he added with pride. What province are you from, lad? Yekaterinoslau, sir, village of Bereka in the district of Slavyansk. You don't say. Then we're close neighbors, my lad. I was born in a small estate, Zaruba. Have you ever heard of it? 
My late father thought Zarubin sounds more noble, he added, smiling at Kuzma. You're not joking, sir. Kuzma was elated. Of course I know. It's only a few versts from my village and from the coal mining town of Yama. Zaruba, Temruk, Kubrak, Menchug, all of the old Cossack's gentry estates. God, I'm so glad I griped, or I wouldn't know that my medical officer is one of ours. I beg your pardon, sir, he corrected himself, that we are compatriots. You know, my mother and sister still live there, said Captain Zarubin. God willing, a duty permitting, I plan to visit them this summer. Perhaps we'll see each other again. It would be an honor, sir. Kuzma wanted to get up from his bed, but the doctor motioned him to remain sitting. He was solemn for a moment, and then spoke quietly looking into Kuzma's wide, set black eyes. When you return to till your land, my lad, remember to be always your own man. Forget that you are an invalid. It will be easier for you and for those you love. Never pity yourself, and try to help others who are worse off than you. And there are many. Understood? Yes, sir. At ease, said the captain and patting Kuzma's shoulder, winked at him. By the way, after you're discharged, you can scrape the damn brand mark from your peg. Private Reva sat down on his hospital cot, unstrapped his artificial leg, and holding it in both his hands, looked at it till tears welled up in his eyes. He wiped them off with the back of his hand, laid the limb carefully on the floor next to him, said his silent, our father, Hail Mary, and King of Heaven, and swore that since for the rest of his life he had to depend on this simple substitute for his own lost leg, he had better take good care of it. But Kuzma could not get used to this contraption, no matter how much it helped him to get around. He knew that without it, he would not be able to till his land, a task that taxed even the strong and the healthy. For a 25-year-old, amputee. It was all perseverance. The stump ached almost constantly, especially after a hard day out on the field or on damp, rainy days of autumn. For Kuzma, that ache became a kind of barometer. It's going to rain tomorrow, he would tell his mother. After supper, he would unstrap the birch peg and stretch himself on a long white bench by the wall under an array of darkly gleaming icons. He would lean his wooden leg in the corner, let it rest. It has walked all day, after all, he would joke. Darkened by weather, wear and toil, he could no longer discern on its surface the brand that so angered him a few years ago in the army hospital, and which he never bothered to scrape off after his discharge, and which at once, after his return to his native Bereka, became an attraction for local boys who would point at it and try to decipher the meaning of the four-digit numbers and three letters. Soon, everybody in the village knew that the numbers stood for a field hospital and the three letters, K-O-R, for his Christian name, patronymic, and family name, Kuzma Ostapovich Reva. Often in the evening, as Kuzma was lying on the bench, his mother would arrange a soft pillow under his head and gently massage a knot of red scars where the boy's knee joint used to be before Japanese shrapnel and surgeon's saw ripped through it. Both fatigue and mother's caress made him drowsy, and in a slumber, 
his memory would carry him back to the day when he returned home from the distant and accursed war. From the hospital, Kuzma had written a short letter to his parents stating that he was getting well. The army had notified them that he was wounded in action without stating the nature of his wound and that he was given an award. Private Kuzma Reva, brave as he was, could not muster enough courage to let his parents know that as far as the army was concerned, he was a full invalid. As he thought more about it, staring at a blank piece of paper, Kuzma realized that it was not even lack of courage. It was his deep concern for the old folks back home. Until his return, the least he could do, after all, was to spare them the pain of knowing that their only son had been crippled for life. Ostap and Daria Reva were not blessed with many offspring. Their firstborn, a girl, died before reaching her first birthday. After her death, Daria, for seven years, wore dark skirts and blouses and black shawls right until the day she gave birth to Kuzma. And even then, she eased her mourning only in as much that she allowed herself to wear a floral kerchief to the church services on Sundays and holidays. Shall I stop? Oh, it's not much longer, sorry. <laughs> I cut it anyway. Kuzma remembered that when he was growing up, he somehow felt the presence of his little sister, Christina, when he, whom he never saw. As a teenager, he sensed Christina's presence in his mother's unexpected and furtive tears, her long and silent prayers while kneeling before the icons. As he knelt next to her, she would whisper, pray for your little sister, the innocent soul. She is one of God's angels now, and she'll always pray right at God's throne for you, my dove. And so he did, even while galloping on his chestnut gelding with his squadron in a dark charge against a Japanese rearguard, a heavy saber in his firm grip. Until his mind dissolved in the fiery flash and acrid smoke of a deafening explosion, he did not feel a searing pain in his left leg, nor the death scream of his rearing horse. Regaining his consciousness in the hospital, moans of wounded in his ears and smell of iodoform in his nostrils, and looking incredulously at his missing leg, Kuzma attributed his survival to the intercession of the long-deceased infant, his heavenly sister, as much as to the prayers of his mother. And so instead of writing about the loss of his limb, he wrote in his letter about places he had been sent with his unit, so different from what he had seen before, Manchuria and Korea, the natives have yellow skin, Mama, black hair and slanted eyes. It seems they all look alike. There are no blondes or redheads except for foreigners. In large cities, Chinese men wear their hair braided, like our women back home, and funny-looking wide-brimmed hats. Yes, of course, of course, each of our writers is very interesting. But I'm too short, shall I stand like this? Well, anyhow, uh, Mrs. Uh, Deemer uh, would like me to introduce her. And of course, she's our member, and she's going to be next, because she's D.
Hello, my friends. First, I will read to you a few lines in Russian. It sounds like Две судьбы. Бой протяжный кремлевских курантов из эфира явился как дух, мне напомнив, что в двух вариантах предназначена жизнь эмигрантам. Две судьбы у меня на роду. And now the same thing in English. Oh boy, as I started to translate into English rhyme and into English rhythm and topic, I opened the can of worms. So <laughs> therefore, take courage and bear with me. This poem is typical, oh, I am taller. This poem is typical to emigrant poetry by the radio. Two fates of the emigrants. Loud chimes of the Kremlin were driven to my ears through the, e through the air like a breeze to destroy in my heart joyful peace and recall this a double life given to the emigrants, two destinies. When one emigrant's fate will be chosen, bring with it a few bruises and scars. And my other fate is very far in the cosmos, somewhere dim and frozen as a captive of glittering stars. Dare my woods turn to brown and yellow. Dare my roots disappear like my wings. Not for me will the nightingale sing. Where are you now, gray-headed fellow, who could love me in some forgotten spring? And I pressing my temples, remember long forgotten years rushing alone. It's like steering a smoldering ember. Kremlin chimes strike persistent and strong. To me always two fates will belong. So we go again. <laughs> my, <coughs> my next poem has an American touch. A mulatto cabaret dancer. The stage is shaking. Lights are burning. The smell of gin and smoke is dense. Applause is loud, thunderstorming. A slender girl is there performing with zest. A wild Watusi dance. Her, her face so beautiful and tender beneath the darkness blushes shy. She intertwines the flame with splendor and smites the patron and bartender with fiery eyes with hip or thigh. The swarm of jeans in her is gathered 
like in the hive, the bees in spring of her forgotten great-grandfathers. They argue heated with each other and try so hard their rule to bring. But every trait takes rightful places. In her it lavishly unfolds. The pilgrims, slaves, and master traces. She's on the border of two races and also even of two worlds. up and down. <laughs> oh, I grew a little bit. <laughs> Be before the winter landscape of Grandma Moses, when sometimes I try from New York to escape, to Grandma I go, to the winter landscape. There's snow everywhere like a swan's virgin down and sound of church bells ring over trees' crowns. It nice through the miniature hamlet to walk, their people awake, not by siren, by cock. Their hedges and bushes, like menacing guards, won't grant me permission to enter the yards. The village behind me, and suddenly, swift, my feet blunder over the fluffy snowdrift, and silverly snowflakes whirl now through the air when uphill I follow the trail of a hare. Before me the fir trees, they really amaze. With branches they tenderly will me embrace. Their calm and tranquility reign in the dale, in this unforgettable white fairy tale, and so great delight in my heart, I uncork. America, it is not only New York. <laughs> and now I will read to you a short story, a short short story. A subway train rushed rattling along through the win wintry night in the New York underground. The cars were loudly screeching on curves or shaking at the loss of speed. Passengers were sitting peacefully relaxed with indifferent or bored faces. Only a young couple of students near the door was not enticed in this languid nirvana. He, a chubby fellow with a beardy beard slightly overlapping a bright checkered scarf, was possessively embracing uh, the narrow shoulders of his girlfriend, and she, a small one and frail, was blushing with happiness. She, with tapered nose and a cute face beneath a fur, fur hat, somewhat resembled a baby fox. When, from sudden jerk of the car, the old man in a cup who was dozing across the aisle opened his eyes, 
she finding herself in the field of vision of this unexpected witness became embarrassed, moved a little away from her fellow traveler and spoke loudly pointing at the walls. Take a look. I didn't pay much attention to them before. Attention to what? To the graffiti. What about it? Some of them are made with real great talent. Look there, they are quite beautiful. You are beautiful, honey. The fellow again pulled the girl closer to him and kissed her on her parted lips. She looked askance at the old man. He was submerged into drowsiness. At one of the stops into car burst a young group in leather jackets and the silent training until then was broken. Two black youth with shining chains around, chains around their necks tried to outshout each other arguing about the advantages of the motorcycles of different makes. A short boy, apparently a Puerto Rican, wearing a single earring was singing a Spanish tune and a tall blonde hippie type fellow with shaggy shoulder length hair was making faces and stamping in the twist. The passenger awoke immediately from their sleepiness. Their eyes turned alert and suspicious to the hoodlums who started to bully the people. Nobody rebuffed them. The hippie stopped in front of the girl, stared at her evaluating, and with defiance flashing in his steely blue eyes, exclaimed, hey man, what a pretty chick the bearded guy has. She's a doll. Hello, baby. Laughing, he patted her on the head. The frightened girl clung even closer against her escort. Leave her alone, beat it, sternly shouted the student at the tormentor. The hippie moved away. This incident would have a happy ending if the Puerto Rican wouldn't intervene. And you, pal, what's the matter with you? You right away got scared and put your tail between your legs. He castigated his friend. What a hero, a real tough guy. with the jerk pulled his right hand from his pocket. Something clicked. In his hand flashed the blade of a knife. Go ahead, tell me now to beat it. He stepped clo closer to the couple. The student repeated, leave her alone, get out of here. This time in his voice, it was possible to detect uncertainty. Yeah, well, all right, can I read just the end? All right. I timed at home, it was 12 minutes and 30 seconds. I don't know. <laughs> well, there passed only a few minutes. Well, you would not know. Well, okay. Uh, the boyfriend returned. The boyfriend actually went to the end of the car. He was afraid of these ho uh, hoodlums and so far. Now, the girl didn't turn with complaint to the cops when they came in. She was very confused as if in her mind some gap formed. Other passengers kept 
morosely silent also. The boyfriend returned to the girl who was still in a stupor. He started heartily and guiltily to whisper something into her ear. She appeared not to hear him. At the next stop, the girl, without even a glance at her companion, rushed headlong out onto the platform. Her boyfriend had no time to follow. Her eyes were full of tears. It was not yet her station, but she couldn't stay any longer in the same car with the people who didn't come to her defense and with the coward who was claiming her love. And afterwards, after time, every time she sees graffiti in her mind, emerges a subway car, a gang of hoodlums, and memories about her first love with the unexpectedly ended on that frosty winter evening. Well, I promise and I will deliver. There are two short, short stories, no question about it. And uh, to prepare it, I, I had a difficult time because my writing now, it's much, I much, uh, write much longer pieces. However, I, I chose those uh, who more or less represent my um, themes. One is satirical uh, and definitely it has to do with the former Soviet Union, other more lyrical, more universal. So the first story is called The List. One day, a friend and I were sitting in a cafe, and during a lull in the conversation, I pulled out a notebook and began to make a list of errands my wife had asked me to do for her. What are you writing? What list is this? Asked my friend, trying to look over my shoulder. It's nothing, I replied. I think you're trying to put something over on me. My friend moved closer. What's the list for? He asked, winking. For nothing. Put my name down. <laughs> Don't be a jerk. Emil, he pleaded. Come on, put my name down. Leave me alone. So that's the way it is, he said furiously. When you want something, you come to me. But when I ask you to put me on your list, it's another story. <laughs> Will you cut it out? I snapped, stop bugging me about the damn list. <laughs> What's happening, comrades? Inquired an elderly citizen who had stopped at our table. What list is this? <laughs> it's not a list, I retorted. Understood, said the citizen coyly. My name is Glosky. <laughs> put it down. To get rid of him, I scribbled something on the page. Thank you, said Glosky. When do we come in to check on our names? Uh, tomorrow morning, uh, at 6.30. I said the first thing that came to my mind. Thank you, said Glosky, taking his leave. Before he was out of sight, two more people came up and demanded that their names be added to the list. I wrote them down, then nonchalantly leaned my elbow on the open notebook. Emil, screamed my friend, who was turning green. What are you doing? Why are you torturing me? Please, as a friend, please put my name down. No, I won't. <laughs> At that moment, a heavyset man came up to our table and began to pull the notebook from the underneath my elbow. 
Give it to me, he said. My handwriting is neater. <laughs> the sportly fellow sat down in a corner of the cafe and added his own name and those of two girls he knew. Glosky appeared again. Excuse me, he said. Can I put my wife on the list? <laughs> no, I answered firmly. Why not? We have different last names. <laughs> In that case, it's OK. <laughs> Glosky grinned broadly and skipped over to the heavyset man around whom a crowd was rapidly growing. When the pages of my small notebook were filled, someone got a piece of wrapping paper at the counter and used it to continue the list. I will never forgive you for this, screamed my friend, looking back toward me as he pushed toward the crowd. His perspiring face bore a tragic expression. Just then, the heavyset man announced, we have 200 names. <laughs> no more. That's all we can take. Write me down, my friend begged as he finally reached the list maker. Somebody may drop out. <laughs> I suppose we could keep going, the heavyset man agreed but then we'll have to start checking in at 5 in the morning. <laughs> there will be more dropouts that way, you know? Glosky reappeared. Can I enter my wife's sister? <laughs> she has the same last name as her husband. Where is she registered, I asked. In Moscow. Go ahead, I nodded. Soon, someone started another list. Then a third one was begun. People argued over which list was valid. <laughs> Could I see your palms, please? Asked an old man pulling the stub of an indelible pencil from a toothbrush container in his pocket. We will mark your number on the palm of your hand. Experience has shown that this is the best way to keep track of the line. Why there, said Glosky, extending his palm for marking. Sometimes palms uh, perspire from, the, from nerves, you know? Because it's a good spot, said the old man, clenching his fist. No one will see your number and steal it. <laughs> it was drizzling when I finally left the cafe. A long line of people stretched from the entrance and continued around the corner. Uh, thank you. Among those waiting were, thank you. Among those waiting were an old woman knitting a sweater in a feeble light of the street lamp, two young men playing a serious chess game on a portable board, and a substantial looking citizen who sat on a folding chair while reading a magazine. A terrible thought rushed through my mind. What if this is all for real? Oh my God, I slapped myself on the forehead. My name is not any of this list. <laughs> I turn right down to street cafe. Citizen, I scream, who is last in the line? <laughs> and the second story is called, It's Not a Simple Thing. Why do you look at me, young man? You're probably wondering how come on a Sunday an old man is sitting in a cemetery wearing a big cap, hurrying nowhere and waving his foot back and forth. Yes, young man, it's strange. 
I'm surprised too. You remind me so much of myself some 60 years ago. Why have such impression? Because I see that you are unhappy because you aren't in love with anyone. But do you understand this? You are introduced to a young girl and, well, you don't like her too much. You respect her, yes, but you don't love her, at least not the way we all want love when we are young. Well, you don't love her, but how do you say such things? It's not so simple. You're delaying it and delaying it. Well, you say, I'll tell her the day after tomorrow. Okay, I'll tell her on Sunday. I'll do it after the concert in the city park. In short, you're dragging it out for such a long time that you learn from your parents that you're engaged. <laughs> but you're an honest man. You want to, uh, her to know uh, that you, well, don't love her. Now you vow to yourself that right before the marriage date, you won't be such a rag anymore, and you'll tell her all. But it's not such a simple thing to tell a girl that you don't love her. Okay, you decide. I'll get married. And then inevitably, when there is no love, quarrels and fights will start and we'll get divorced. <laughs> and that will be the end of the whole story. But imagine yourself a crazy thing. You get married, you wait for quarrels, but there are none, none and none. You simply have not a thing to nag about. Well, finally you as an honest man open your mouth to tell her, excuse me my dear, but I don't love you. <laughs> but you only open your mouth. It was she who had the say. We have to wait with that new sofa. We are going to have a baby. A baby, a new thing now, a baby. Now try to tell her what you are going to tell when she is already breastfeeding the baby. Tell her such a thing and her milk will dry up. The baby will be hungry. And is it really his fault that you don't love his mama? Okay, you say to yourself, the baby doesn't feed from his mom anymore, he's eating his cereal. But now the baby has chicken pox. You have to keep your mouth shut till the baby gets well. And then, and then you have to go on a business trip again. And when you come back from the business trip, you're told that, that soon you'll be a papa again. To make it short, my young man, imagine that you're 83 years old, you have seven children, three grandchildren, and one great-granddaughter whose name is Masha. <laughs> but how can you live with a person and not to tell her the truth at last? You gather all your guts. Finally, you go to her. But my young man, she's not feeling well. She feels bad. She, my young man, is dying. Tears are in your, your eyes. You kiss her old hands, ask her to forgive you, and admit on her deathbed uh, that, but she doesn't give you a chance. She smiles, nods with a happy face, and whispers, I always knew it. You don't understand. You try to explain to her that you didn't love her. You did not. But she dies in your arms and still keeps smiling. Now, do you understand, my young man, 
why every Sunday an old man sits in a cemetery in his old cap, doesn't hurry anywhere and wave his foot back and forth. It's strange. It's very strange. I'm surprised myself, my young man. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Anna Freilich, and I, uh, I will read short poems. I don't have short story. <laughs> On a cellar, apples, and poets. And in our cellar also, apples smelled of a garden. Yet how to describe it when so many poets have written about that cellar and about the smell of those apples? Who knows if there was just one such cellar under the land of their childhood, or if each winter apples smelled the same for all? And were there staples and padlocks in those cellars, just like in ours? In the garden left by the Germans, almost like in the garden of Hesperides, grew golden renettes and funny Jonathans with one red cheek. They had to be picked carefully from the branch wrapped in newspapers and wood shavings, placed delicately in baskets, but it was well worth the effort, for it's not in cellars that they smell now, but in the songs of poets artfully arranged by them on the silver trays of verses. And I'll read the same in Polish which is the language in which I write. The translations, uh, all except two, were done by Re Regina Grol Prokopczyk, who is also a member of our chapter. O piwnicy, jabłkach i poetach. A w naszej piwnicy także jabłka pachniały ogrodem. Ale jak to opisać, skoro tylu poetów pisało o tej piwnicy i o tych jabłek zapachu? Kto wie, czy to tylko jedna, Taka piwnica pod krajem lat ich dziecinnych? Czy każdej zimy tak samo jabłka dla wszystkich pachniały? I czy był skobel i kłódka w tamtych piwnicach, jak w naszej? A w poniemieckich ogrodach, prawie jak w hesperyjskich, rosły złote renety i śmieszne zajęcze główki z jednym policzkiem czerwonym. Trzeba je było ostrożnym ruchem z gałęzi zrywać, troskliwie w koszach układać, w gazetę otulać i wióry. I warto było się trudzić, bo pachną już nie w piwnicach, ale w wierszach poetów ułożone misternie na srebrnych tacach wersetów. Birds. Scattering crumbs of her daily bread, my saddened mother feeds forest birds. And orioles, starlings, or titmice don't even suspect that mother is also a migrating bird. Nests woven, nests built, along her path she spreads like seed. In Lvov, in Warsaw, and by the ocean, each herd blown away by a different wind. 
from my mother's hand. Eat thrushes, eat. And one more poem about mother. <coughs> beautiful is my mother, beautiful is my mother. Every spring more stunning, with every hair gone whiter, with deeper wrinkles running, with every step gone harder, with nights still darker coming. Beautiful is my mother, every spring more stunning. And that was translated by Jacob Pogoda. Uh, this year marks the centennial of the birth of Bruno Schulz and also the 50th anniversary of his death at the hand of uh, the Gestapo men in Drohobycz. Bruno Schulz was a, a very prominent Polish uh, writer. I wrote the poem reading the letters of Bruno Schulz uh, in 70s when his letters uh, first came out in Polish. Reading the letters of Bruno Schulz. And after the heat, rains came, and you came, the mule, almost reticent. Leaves suddenly grown weary in midsummer, the wind swept up from under our feet. I was just reading Schulz's letters, letters written in Drohobycz in a dark room on Floriańska Street. Burned letters to a woman burned. Somewhere buried letters to friends, somewhere buried. He was so frail, one bullet was too much for that death. Perhaps weary in midsummer, leaves fall in Drohobycz and cinnamon diffuses a death scent. Thank you. Uh, the next poem is translated by Maya Peretz. Elegy on a tile stove. Bedrocks of my childhood, people from one bus on five continents live out their lives. Bedrocks of my childhood, like old tile stoves, taken apart brick by brick to leave more room. And this room for what and whom? It's so totally unfamiliar. And what wouldn't you give to be home to warm your hands on the stove's hot tiles? Verdict. I'll give you up. I'll give you up to a girl with fair hair. Every breath of yours and desire and each smile She'll be touching you, she'll be kissing you, and I'll go as tranquil as night's calm. I'll give you up with your roots. I'll give you as you are. May she love you unto pain and unto doubt. May she wake at night and cease believing, and at dawn's crack believe you again. May she watch you from the corner, how easily you let things slip your mind. May she be truly pleased that other girls like you. May she know 
how beautiful you are, and may she fear. And I'll vanish, I'll forget, I'll go away. Telephone. <coughs> Change into jingling bells and rings of wire, whirled somewhere under the ground. You are, as I was taught at school, the frequency of vibration on tin. I can have you for seven digits and for a button, for a light. I can have a vibrant strain of the membrane. And I would rather have you in tall grass where ladybugs and beetles take their walks. And I would rather have you in the hay with funny little stalks stuck in your hair. And I would have you in a horse-drawn coach with curtains pulled together, trotting to nowhere. The horses would rush, and you would kiss my hands, my lips, and breasts. And there would be no seven marking digits, but only seven stars upon the skies, and seven mountains, and seven nights. <coughs> Untitled. The streets are still warm by my thoughts of you, and the sidewalks, sidewalks are swarming as if an expectation that you will come to meet me today. Roses in various hues glow in flower beds and against walls. They don't last, you said of them last spring. But they still blossom and blossom when we stroll past them you with your autumnal cold, I with my fear that all shall pass. And the last poem, chill, A Chilly Night. A chilly night, a candle blazes in the other room, and through the open door, its flickering glow casts a geometric streak on the ceiling. The wind sifts with a rustle among leaves still green. It's almost dawn, and the sky has this quaint degree of brightness which barely traces the contours without casting light. The night is chilly. The siren sounds off far away and doesn't even dab the slumber of the sleeping. Together we are enclosed. It's only our dream that separate. I am dreaming a strange poem, both long and difficult, one that even a critic won't grasp all at once. A poem which sometimes for years lies undisturbed as sunken ships lie at the bottom of distant seas. They hold silver cups and trays, emeralds in fancy chests, they must have rotten true, but priceless pearls spread a flickering glow on the walls of the locked chest. Such a poem I dream on this night, autumnal and holy, between the candle and chill, between dawn and the wind, between waking and sleep. Thank you. very much. And now is our cherry on the top, Mrs. Tarnowska, 
Marta, and is going to be read her poetry by Mrs. Kukritska, which I would like apologize in the front of all of you for my doing this, but that was the time, not my impoliteness, so I apologized again. I will read one poem in the original Ukrainian. It has a German title to it, Das Ewig Weibliche, which is a phrase taken from Goethe's Faust, and it means the eternally feminine. Ja, zemla, spawnena łask, szczedra swoim bohatstwom, teplo moje życie dajne. Czerpaj i z niego mow wodu ci luszczu, mużniść, sylu, radość życia. Ja, zemla, ty sprawy, ja mogę tebe napojić. Ty głodny, ja nakormlu. Ty samotny, ja zigrzyję teplom swojego ciała. Ja, zemla, teplo moje życie dajne, niewłasne, pozyczne. Ja wsia u poloni sońca, ja nasyczena sońcem, ja nim szczedra. Ja, zemla, ta bez sońca ja, mertwy kamień, wyhasły misiać. Popiół pragnień, co jego nie zaplitnisz bilsze nowym życiem. Ja, zemla, teplo moje życie dajne, ja szczedra, nie zabierajte tylko w mene słońca. shall read the translation of uh, Das Ewig Weibliche. I am the earth, full of blessings, generous with my riches. My warmth is a life-giving one. Draw up from it like healing water, manhood, strength, joy of living. I am the earth. You are thirsty, I will give you to drink. You are hungry, I will feed you. You are lonely, I will warm you with the warmth of my body. I am the earth. My warmth, life-giving one, is not my own. It is borrowed. I am a captive of the sun. I am permeated with it. I am generous with its riches. I am the earth. Without the sun, however, I am but a dead stone a moon extinguished, ashes of desire that can no longer be impregnated with new life. I am the earth. My warmth is life-giving. I am generous. But do not take away from me the sun.
the next one is, uh, in my life too, there was a babin yar. In my life too, there was a babin yar. They came in rows of eight along the street, men, women, children, young and old, and overhead a most peculiar sound, 100 grievances, a stifled cry. A gray-haired man stood tall, his shirt untied, his head raised high, he walked ahead in front. Our neighbor, Goldberg, known to all. He's not a rabbi, only a physician. He's a musician, loves philosophy. In normal times, he used to save men's lives, but now he's bound to save man's dignity. Around him, a forest of bayonets, a convoy of well-scrubbed young men, helmets and polished boots reflect the sun. Do these boys also read Goethe? Do they listen to Tannhäuser and Isolde? Are there musicians and philosophers among them? I am 12. Mother tears me away from the window. She presses her fists to her teeth. Blood from her fingers makes her face smudgy. They put me to bed. I am feverish. I imagine traces of broken skulls on the wall. Only father is not here. He is in hiding in some strange village in stacks of hay to wait out this night which descended during daylight hours. He's not alone. He is with Goldberg the Younger, son of the physician, music lover, and philosopher. A black cat. A black cat has crossed my way. Not a Baudelarian cat guarding cosmic mystery in his eyes. Not an ingratiating kitten in search of cuddling. A wild black cat bursts from the jungle of the unconscious. It frightens and tempts me into an abyss, like a prophecy of old superstition. A letter to Rio. Do you hear, Vera, in far off Rio? We're here. We've arrived on the globe. Like a meteor of surprise for the world to a welcome of fear and prejudice. The scale of values is changing. Enemies appear to be potential allies. And old friends prove to be egotistical hypocrites who wish to keep for themselves a monopoly on freedom. But we're here, and we're here to stay. My posture today is poised with a new dignity. I smile frequently while reading the world's papers. We came out onto the arena with a raised head and we were finally noticed. What happiness to be alive to see this miracle when the dream of doomed generations becomes a daily reality, when no longer the blood of revolutionaries but the reasonable intellect of statesmen not the fury of destroyers, but a steady toil of reformers are building a real tomorrow. We're here, and we're here to stay. We shall no longer be denied. Let's raise our champagne glasses, Vera, to our future. Cheers!
me to say, like to thank very much our writers. And uh, we are very fortunate to have our president today. And also, Ms. Pierce, she says that she likes to work with me, but uh, work is two-way street. So without Ms. Pierce, wouldn't it be such a nice evening, too. Thank you very much for your attendance.